Do please be seated and take up your Bibles as we look at Daniel chapter 11 this morning. Last week we heard the angel speaking to Daniel and setting out 500 years of complex, detailed, accurate, ancient military conflict. It would be an impressive feat, I think, even during an AP history exam. But the angel was not writing up history, he was writing out history. That is, telling it all before it happened, and as we saw last week in exquisite detail, it did. Now this week, if you look closely at chapter 11, I think the style of the prophecy shifts just a little bit. There is far less detail now about the events and far greater focus on the meaning of the events. And there is, of course, a good reason for it. God does not reveal the future to impress us. He reveals the future to prepare us. So what is God preparing us for? That's the question today. And the answer is the end. He's preparing us for the end of the world. Now, I love all this theology that we've been doing. I really do. But do you know what else I love? Lasagna. I love all Italian food. The reason why I love lasagna so much is because it is just a lot of Italian food on top of another lot of Italian food. It's just layer upon layer of pasta and sauce and meat. And guess what's next? More pasta, more sauce, more meat. I love it. It's fantastic stuff. And I think perhaps the reason why I love Daniel so much is that it combines two of my favorite things. Prophecy is like a sort of theological lasagna, I think. There are numerous layers of prophecy revealed in one prophetic scoop. You get one idea fulfilled in numerous different ways, in numerous different layers, an idea that is fulfilled immediately in a very physical sense, and then intermediately, maybe hundreds of years in the future, and then ultimately in the end, that final layer, each one like the one before, that somehow I find lasagna gets better the more of it you you take. A great example of this theological lasagna appears in in verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Who is he? Who is the he of verse 32? From the very earliest church fathers, Jerome, Hippolytus, Theodosius, Chrysostom, all the way through to the greatest biblical scholars today, our adult forum, it, it has been agreed, I think, that the king that we studied last week is the he, that is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. But, but everyone also agrees at some point in today's section of prophecy, the he changes. We reach another layer, another he. It's a different king, a more ultimate king, a more sinister, more demonic king behind the king. And so two kings, I think, prophetically are scooped up in, in one pronoun here. Two layers. Immediately, Antiochus. It was prophesied a long time ago that he would come, and he did. Uh, So also, therefore, will his king, the king that we have not yet met, the one who comes to his end in the end, Satan. Both of them, I think, are addressed in this one prophecy. 
Now, Antiochus, we heard last week, he had a big head. He was a fat head, really. Uh, he styled himself Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It means manifest or manifest one. He believed himself to be the manifestation of God. He believed himself and told everyone that he was God in human form. Archaeologists have found artifacts and coins minted by himself where he imposed his own face on the body of Zeus and over the image of Apollos. He depicted himself frequently with stars over his head and wreathed, crowned laurels over his head like a victor and and the rays of the sun emanating from his own skull. Uh, Daniel reveals to us, uh, ironically, although he is manifesting something, it ain't God that he's manifesting this show-off. Rather, he is a prototype, a pre-echo, a superficial layer of something far more demonic beneath. Two kings in one pronoun, in one verse, he. Also, verse 32, two humans, or two types of human, two groups of humans. And uh, these humans are far more clearly delineated than the he. The he's are the same, the humans are different. There are two groups that are, in fact, entirely different. Verse 33 shows us they are the wise and the people. Two groups of characters from two different kingdoms. There are no waverers in verse 32 and verse 33. There's no fuzzy edge or overlap between them. There's not a Venn diagram of kingdoms. There are no people with a foot in each camp. There is no one who has gone and sort of like a buffet, taken a little bit of each god and each religion and each idea, a smattering of them all, a smorgasbord of theology and shoved their smorgasbord into their lasagna. No one has done that. No one in Daniel 32 has a coexist bumper sticker on their donkey. There are quite simply two distinct groups. There are those who know God and only know God, and there are those who do everything else. Two kingdoms, two groups, two types of human. And the wise, type A, they do two things. Verse 32 says they stand firm and they take action. And uh, I've been a pastor long enough now to see enough church to to realize that believers really like the standing firm part, but they're not too keen on the taking action part, if we're going to be honest. God doesn't just call us to know what we believe. God doesn't just call us to hunker down and get our doctrine straight. and and shelter in here, and just become more perfect in our thinking, and more feeble in our acting. He calls us also, having got our doctrine straight, to go out and do something with it. Just taking an idea from one of our favorite preachers, Francis Chan, um, let me Fox Chapelize an idea of his for you. If I drive through Fox Chapel this afternoon at 100 miles an hour, and I get pulled over, Will it be okay if I tell the police officer, don't worry, mate, I know the speed limit. If I say, I've been studying the speed limit for years, will that be okay? If I say, I have an inspirational poster of the speed limit on my office wall. I have behind my desk a bookshelf full of academic tomes 
all about the speed limit. Will that be okay? I've just got back from a conference on the speed limits. I've got a spreadsheet of all the different speed limits in the entire city. Would you like to see it? Would you like to hear a song about the speed limit? (laughs) My parents drove the speed limit for me when I was a baby. Well, I was planning on keeping the speed limit soon. I'm on a journey towards the speed limit. Will he accept any of that? No, of course he won't. We are called to take action, not just to know this stuff, hunker down and get our thinking straight, but having done so, to go out and do something with it. Verse 33 sets out quite clearly what the action is. This is what the church is for, to glorify God, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. There's your marching orders. Go out and make people in the other kingdom who worship the other kings understand that they can worship the true king. The key job of the church is to teach what we believe, to act, to rescue people from the kingdom of Satan. Uh, And at this point, many of us freak out. You mean that I have to now go out and explain my faith? Yes. Uh, You mean I have to do this to a group of people that doesn't like me? Yes. Who don't get what I'm talking about? Yes. And to a group of people who worship a terrifying king who himself is merely an embodiment of an even more terrifying king who hates us? Yes. This can, I have discovered, cause some of us to become discouraged. (laughs) Thank you, George. Uh, And we start to think now, well, how am I going to say it? How am I going to phrase it? What am I going to do? I've got all this jargon. How am I going to explain the jargon that explains what I'm trying to explain? What tactics do I need to employ? I need a battle plan. I need a script. What can I learn? What can I do? You go to conferences. Evangelists teach you how to do it. Let me, you get a napkin out and you draw six stick figures on it and then they become a Christian. I went to one conference. They had a sort of um, a, a diagram on the wall. It was about eight foot long of how to make a Christian. It looked like a Rube Goldberg sausage machine with, you know, bicycle and an egg whisk and all, you know, it's nonsense. No, that isn't how we do it. We get freaked out and we start to panic about what we'll say and how we'll say it because we haven't really taken notice of what verse 33 really says. Look closely. Have you failed to notice where God has placed you? Look where God has placed you, verse 33. Among the people. He's put you among the people. This idea of the conflict of kingdoms gets us to think of some horrific horde charging at us with sticks. But actually, we're already among the people, though we're distinct in terms of the kingdom that we're in. We're situated right bang in the middle of the group that we've been called to reach. Just Being a Christian where you are is powerful. Being a believer in your home, in your street, in your place of work is an incredibly powerful thing. When we live out our faith, when we start to take action where we are, it is incredibly powerful. 86% of people who come to church come because someone invited them to come. It's immensely powerful, the power that you had. God has placed you where you are to share your faith. Paul says, 
We do this with the words, we explain the gospel, and our lives also. Uh, Peter said that we've been called to, to lead such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Jesus says, uh, live uh, your lives, let your light shine amongst uh, men so that they may glorify God. And, and Paul says that we should pray that a door would be opened for the gospel. Forget the theology for a minute. We know that Christ died for us to take away our sins. We know that we are free. We know that healing and, and freedom comes from knowing Christ. We know that he has atoned for us and will present us as righteous before God. But just forget the theology for a minute and do a little bit of neighborhood theological lasagna. When you love your neighbor as yourself, they notice. When you honor your mother and father, they notice. Men in the room, when we love our wives like Christ loved the church, when in headship we submit to them and are prepared even to die for them because that's what Christ does for us, the world will notice. And when we do all of this without seeking anything in return, people want to know why. Now at this very point, the door is wide open for the gospel. They're ready to hear all about it. And it is far, far easier to lead someone to Christ who saves us by grace when we live like grace is real, when we live like it's true, when we live like children of grace. So God is calling us into the battle. God is calling us onto the battlefield in this conflict of kingdoms, armed with the very same thing with which he entered the battle, grace. To fight for the lost like Christ fought for the lost, even dying for them. Now, if we did this just a little tiny bit, let's say, let's say we did it 5% more. Just imagine what an impact that would have in the place that we have been put among. Just imagine. I mean, surely they would notice, the people that we live with and work with would notice if, if we just manifested 5% more grace, if we... For example, reduced our slander and our backbiting and our gossip and our grumbling and our rage and our sotto voce conversations and machinations and in their place manifested instead just a hint of joy and a hint of freedom and a hint of hope and a serving of patience and a little bit of peace. I guarantee you the lost would notice if that happened. I also guarantee so too will the enemy, and he will attack. Some of us will, look at verse 33, stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. In every single season of the church's global life, exactly this has befallen her. In 164 BC, during the Maccabean Revolt, which is the thing prophesied here, layer number one in the angel's theological lasagna, the people of God did resist and did fall. But history keeps repeating AD 64, after the great fire of Rome, Emperor Nero turned his wrath on the Christians and tortured them to death. In the 16th century and early 17th century, hundreds of missionaries were martyred in Nagasaki by crucifixion. In 1905, 200 Orthodox priests were shot in St. Petersburg for their faith. In China today, this actual day, 
Pastors are being imprisoned, churches are being bulldozed, and people are being brainwashed by the party because of what they believe. Early church, Roman Catholic church, Eastern Orthodox church, contemporary evangelical and neo-Pentecostal church, all suffering the same thing, every denomination, in every generation, in every nation, the story is the same. And verse 33 says, when the enemy comes for us, when he starts to take our things away, it can cause us to stumble. Now, I saw that word stumble. I just assumed I knew what it meant. I assumed it was the, the same sort of stumble that we find in 1 Corinthians, and it, it meant, you know, give up. The, the enemy might get us to give up on our faith, fall away. Uh, but it doesn't mean that. I looked it up. It's an interesting word. It doesn't mean fall away. It means fall down. That is, to become feeble or weak. Actually, what it means is teeter and totter. That's what the dictionary says it means. Persecution can make you wobble. It can shake you and weaken you. It's repeated exactly, verse 35, same word, always significant, remember, church, when we see one word repeated twice in succession, it's to get our attention. And there the purpose of the shaking and stumbling is revealed. It is so that we may be refined and purified. As things are taken away, as the things of this world are taken from us, our freedom or our possessions are taken away. Weirdly, it seems often the people of God are more free to worship him, not less. For all the persecution in China, it is now estimated there are 90, 90 million Christians in China alone. In a hundred years, there's been a hundredfold increase in the size of the Chinese church. The more they are attacked, the more wise they become, the more they turn to God, the more they take action, the more they bring other people to God, and the bigger the church becomes. And of course, the kings of this world and the king behind them notice. So we're called Christians to live out this good news of grace. The grace we've received in Christ, we now share with those who are lost and share our grace with them. What about the ultimate enemy, the end-of-level baddie, Satan himself? I don't think we offer him grace, do we? We don't, can't fight him with grace. How do we fight Satan? Uh, leave him to me, says God. Look at verse 35. The time of the end, the appointed time is coming. Now the word time is repeated twice. That's significant. Another word repeated telling us that from our perspective, though Satan may be rampant around us and his kings may have great power, their time is limited. There is someone or something out with time which is holding them and will one day let them go. It is, of course, God himself. The end is set. The last battle is coming. The ultimate layer comes into view, the end comes into view, the beginning of the end is nigh, and he, clearly Satan now, that he is Satan, verse 36, in the interim, in the last days, shall do as he wills, but only for a time. I want you to be encouraged by this. If you've had someone in your life that seemingly is able to do as they will, someone who can subject you to something or oppress you in some way or take from you in some way, some bully, some, some tormentor uh, of any nature, whether it's a, a school teacher or a boss or even a spouse or whatever, you need to know, although it seems from our perspective they have unfettered power today, 
their days are numbered. Until the end. They will be exalting themselves and magnifying himself. This, this power is all about himself. He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. Like Antiochus, Satan believes he is God. And like Antiochus, verse 36 says, he shall prosper. I'm sure you've noticed people in your life who are clearly not living for God, but seem to be doing better than you are. I'm sure you've noticed that some non-Christians have nicer cars than you have, bigger homes than you have, and better stuff than you have. Not me, I've got a really great car. But, you know, I'm sure you've noticed. Is someone muttering about Hyundai's? Is someone grumbling? They're really good. I'm sure um, you've noticed people out there who seem to be doing it all wrong and prospering. And the prophecy never denies that they're going to get away with it in the short term. It just tells us in the long term, like Antiochus, they'll come to an end. He shall prosper, true, but only till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. The end is set. The die is cast. Verse 37 says, until then, he shall magnify himself above all. The enemy is characterized by self-worship. Like Antiochus, he makes coins with his own stupid face on it. Satan likes to take a lot of selfies, you know, doing duck face on his Insta story. Just more pictures of himself on the internet. Me, 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 it's all about me. And there are prizes on offer for anyone who likes to follow him. Just as they are taken from those who follow the true king, they will be given to those who follow the false king. Those, verse 39, who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. Like, um, I just picture you know, loading with honor, like, like one of those game shows where they just keep piling things in your hands, another toy, another special chapchki, you know. I think Satan just wants to load us up with possessions till we can't hold any more, keep us quiet with stuff. And this honor is temporary, of course. It will pass away because... Its king will pass away. It is so tempting to take our identity from the things and the kings around us. I'm a this, I'm a that, I have this, I have that. But it's all temporary. It's all going to pass away. Verse 40 to 44, the last battle is set out. Far more imagery now, far less detail than before. The language ramps up. We're back to that apocalyptic language the imagery language, the imagery and the metaphor and the symbolism. Rush like a whirlwind, verse 40. Delivered, verse 41. Following his train, verse 43. Destruction, verse 44. A sort of collision of empires. A more significant battle. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Two epically symbolic things right here. The sea, in Hebrew thought, was, was idiomatic of control and chaos. Think back to Genesis, where the land is formed out of the sea. Think back to Ezekiel, where the king of Tyre sets up his throne in the sea to show that he controls it. Think to Jesus on the boat calming the sea. And the disciples say to themselves when he does that, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? The answer is God. The untrammeled power of nature is symbolized by the sea. And Satan sets himself up in this last battle in front of the sea as if to say, 
I control nature. I control this world. I can hold back the untrammeled forces of this globe with nothing more than one hand, says Satan symbolically. And look where else he pitches his tent. Before the holy mountain. The symbol of God. The symbol of the presence of God. The holy dwelling place of God. The mountain of God. He puts himself there as if to say, with the other hand... I can do what I like in front of God with impunity. I can hold back God. I can laugh at God and stand before God unaffected, holding back nature in one hand and eternity in the other, and I'm in control in between, says Satan. Yet, verse 45, he shall come to his end with none to help him. Why will no one help him? Why is no one going to help Satan at this point? Well, the answer is because there's only one helper, and that is God. God is our help. In my morning reading this morning from 1 Samuel, uh, I'd read about Ebenezer, the stone of help. Ezer is is the Hebrew word for help. God is the helper of Israel. The reason why no one will help Satan is because God is already busy helping someone else. He is our help. He is for us. Take up your bulletin, please. Page 3, Psalm 46, reproduced in liturgical form for us, says this. God is our refuge and strength. It's not Satan's, he's ours. His possession, our possession. We are his. A very present help in trouble. God helps us. Therefore, we will not fear, verse 2 of the psalm, though the earth be moved, If every single thing fails, if our car breaks down and our house blows up and the earth itself is removed, we will not fear. Do not trust the world. Do not trust the things of the world and the kings of the world. The world is just anchored to nothing. It is just a big ball of rock hurtling through the frozen vacuum of space at 67,000 miles an hour, orbiting a gigantic nuclear bomb. Don't trust that, the psalm continues. Though the mountains be toppled into the depths of the sea. Though in the midst of, of Satan putting himself between these two great forces, what if God were to pick up his mountain and dump that into the sea and take away the whole world? Where would he stand then, this enemy? And that is what will happen. All of these things shall fade away. The kingdom of this world will be taken out from underneath the feet of the king of this world. And the Lord of hosts will be with us. Until the time of that final layer, we have a job to do. Church, our job is really easy. Our job is simply to stand firm where we are and to take action where we are. Winning the lost of the kingdom of this world, soul by soul, by manifesting grace until the king comes in the end to deal with the ultimate enemy in the end for us. Let us pray. Lord God, I ask that you would give us the grace to turn to you again. God, we thank you for the grace that we find in Christ. We ask that we would manifest that grace to our friends and neighbors. God, would you transform us and perfect us and turn us more into your likeness? And would you deploy us in this place to win those around us, among whom we live, for your kingdom? And God, would you shorten these days? Would you 
advance and accelerate the efficacy of our ministry and shorten the days of the end. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, and make all things new, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.